and turned the voyage into an epic of starvation and stench that lasted 195 days. His love of ships and the sea endured, however. He joined the crew of the Lake Champlain, a small steam-powered cargo ship owned by the Beaver Line of Canada but subsequently acquired by the Canadian Pacific Railway. He was its second officer in May 1901 when it became the first merchant vessel to be equipped with wireless. He caught the attention of his superiors and soon found himself first officer on the railway's flagship liner, the Empress of Ireland. In 1907, he gained command of the Montrose. It was not the most glamorous of ships, especially when compared to the Empress, which was new and nearly three times as large and infinitely more luxurious. The Montrose was launched in 1897 and in succeeding years ferried troops to the Boer War and cattle to England. It had one funnel, painted Canadian Pacific's trademark colors, buff with a black top, and flew the line's red and white checkered house flag, it carried only two classes, second and third, the latter known more commonly as steerage, a term that originally denoted the below-decks portion of a ship devoted to steering. A Canadian Pacific timetable from the era described the second-class quarters. The cabin accommodation on the Montrose is situated amidship, where least motion is felt. The staterooms are large, light, and airy. There is a comfortable ladies' room and a smoking room, also a spacious promenade deck. An excellent table is provided. Surgeons and stewardesses are carried on all steamers. The line's motto was, A little better than the best. The manifest for the upcoming voyage listed only 20 passengers in second class, but 246 in third, nearly all immigrants. In addition, the Montrose carried a crew of 107, among them a wireless operator, Llewellyn Jones. Canadian Pacific had been aggressive about installing wireless on its transoceanic vessels, and the Montrose, despite its age and modest decor, carried the latest apparatus. To be successful, Kendall knew, a captain needed more than skill at navigation and ship handling. He had to dress well, be charming, and possess a knack for conversation, while also owning the metal wherewithal to monitor a thousand operational details, including whether the lifeboats were adequately secured, whether the correct foods and wines had come aboard, and a new responsibility— whether the ship's Marconi set and aerial were in good repair and ready to receive the inevitable flurry of trivial messages that engulfed a liner upon departure. Although the jokes, bon voyages, and riddles were utterly predictable, they nonetheless reflected the wonder with which people still treated this new and almost supernatural means of communication. First-time passengers often seemed mesmerized by the blue spark fired with each touch of the key and the crack of miniature thunder that followed. Though shipping lines had learned from experience that wonderment faded quickly for passengers whose cabins were too close to the wireless room. They learned, too, that it was prudent to locate Marconi sets a good distance from the wheelhouse so as not to distort the magnetic field registered by the ship's compass. Before each voyage, Kendall tried to read as many newspapers as he could to keep himself up to date on current events and thereby arm himself to meet his nightly obligation to host guests at his table. Amazing things were happening in the world, so there was a lot to talk about. A year earlier, Louis Blériot had flown his airplane across the English Channel from Calais to Dover, while on display at Selfridge's department store, the craft drew 120,000 admirers. Science seemed foremost on people's minds. Talk of X-rays, radiation, vaccines, and so forth infused dinner conversation. If such talk ever lagged, there was always the compelling subject of Germany, which by the day seemed to grow more pompous and bellicose. Another foolproof way to inject life, if not violence, into a moribund conversation was to comment upon the apparent decline in morality as made evident most shockingly in Bernard Shaw's recent play, Miss Alliance. 
which Beatrice Webb, the social reformer, called brilliant but disgusting, with everyone wishing to have sexual intercourse with everyone else. If all the above failed to ignite a good conversation, one could always talk about ghosts. The whole country seemed engaged in the hunt for proof of an afterlife, with the exploits of the Venerable Society for Psychical Research often in the news. And if by chance a conversation became too heated, too lively, one could recall anew how one felt upon the death of King Edward and remark upon how eerie it was that Halley's Comet should appear at nearly the same time. Shortly before his passengers were due to board, Kendall bought a copy of the Continental Edition of London's Daily Mail, an English-language newspaper distributed in Europe. The edition was full of fresh detail about the North London cellar murder and the escalating search for two suspects, a doctor and his lover. Back in London, the ship had been visited by two officers from Scotland Yard's Thames Division, patrolling the wharves in hopes of thwarting the couple's escape.